Listener Production. Hi, 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 hi. Hello. Yes, hi. Oh, I see you over there. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Stop, stop, stop. Thank you guys so much. Welcome to come out wherever you are. This is a safe space for curious people to learn more about the coming out experience. So congratulations, you are now a part of this beautiful community. And because this is a podcast about the coming out experience, it is only fair that I go first. My name is Sean Zepps. I am a homosexual. My pronouns are he, him. I first came out in early 2000 when I was 12 years old and I last came out yesterday at the pool. I was talking to this dad. We were vibing about our kids and he brought up my wife and I was like, ooh, I'm going to come out to you right now. And he absolutely loved it. He ate it up. Today we are welcoming a brand new member of the Come Out Wherever You Are family. Con, Con, can you introduce yourself? Tell me when you first came out and when you last came out. So my name is Khan Ong. I am also a homosexual. Um, <laughs> I am also a he, him. I first came out in year six, so probably around the same time. Yeah. Uh, early. Very for early. most queens. Also went back in, though, for a couple of years. We're going to unpack that. Yeah. All good. All good. We would definitely do that. <laughs> the last time I came out was pretty much every single day on Instagram because people slide into my DMs and be like, wait, are you gay? I'm <sighs> like, wait, how do you not know this? Wow. Like, I get it constantly. People constantly message me and be like... I didn't know you were gay. Con Ong is a cook, presenter, author, and in a previous life, a very successful DJ. He's been a regular on our television since 2018 when he was a fan favorite on MasterChef before he returned in 2020 and stole our hearts all over again. He's published a book called A Gay Guy's Guide to Life, Love, and Food. Outrageously delicious recipes plus stories and dating advice from a food-obsessed gay. And he's a partner in the very luxe restaurant in Melbourne, The George on Collins. And now, if that wasn't enough, he is back on our TV again, this time in my favorite reality show of all time, Survivor Blood vs. Water. Okay, I can't wait another second. Here's gone. You know what's really exciting about your specific uh, reality television run? So for people who don't know you very well or just being transported into this conversation, obviously you've been on MasterChef, did extremely well, top three, and you're currently on Survivor Australia Blood vs. Water. I'm a super fan, so I'm freaking out. We do not know how far you go there, but we're still watching you. Is that this time in Australian media television, they don't, both of those shows do a really good job of bringing uh, cast members who are extremely diverse, sexuality, yes. culture, but they don't make it a huge no. deal. It wasn't like on your season of MasterChef, every episode, they're like, as a gay chef, you've cooked very <laughs> well today, right? That never happened. Do you know what they did do? They're like, so as a DJ, like that was their point yep. of mm, view mm, of me. Mm. It was never that I was a refugee or that I was gay or that I was Asian. It was... He's a DJ. Why does he want the career change? Yeah. It's fascinating to me as someone who is used to consuming content, media content, where that is the only narrative. Mm -hmm. The gay person is here to be the gay person. They're going to talk about gay things. So to just watch you and your castmates on both shows just be gay, like that just is, as if it's normal, is really fucking refreshing. Yeah, it's, it's, it made me really happy because I've obviously been on 
two different reality TV shows and I never felt like a token mm. on either of them. I never felt like I needed to fit any kind of mould and that made me super excited and it, it made me more comfortable with being myself. Oh, that's great. So let's take a huge, 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 yep. huge, huge, huge step back because I want to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. You were born in a refugee camp in which country? I was born in a refugee camp in Indonesia. Um, I came to Australia when I was two. My parents were there for four years. Refugee camps, I think, back in the early 90s, late 80s, were very different to what they are today. Mm -hmm. Um, There, it was kind of like an economy in itself. They were on an island, but everyone had jobs. Everyone had roles. They could make money and they Mm. could trade and things like that were, were possible. I don't think that's like that now. I am a little bit of a cultural history nerd when it comes to LGBTQI plus acceptance. And Indonesia Mm -hmm. has a rocky history. Mm. I would say, obviously, much better now than it was, Mm. say, in the 80s and 90s. What is your understanding of your culture, specifically your parents, their relationship to what it would mean to be queer? So um, we, my parents are from Vietnam. We just ended up in okay. in Indonesia in the refugee camp. So we um, they had to go through Malaysia and then ended up in Indonesia and their papers were kind of getting worked out there. Okay. Um, so my understanding of Vietnamese culture with the LGBTQIA plus community is that it's not a thing. Mm. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, especially back then. And as I, I was like a in my early teens. It was never a thing. We didn't really talk about it. Um, which is really surprising because the art scene in Vietnam has a lot of cross-dressing 100%. and has a lot of like, yeah, so it's like a lot of men that are pretty much in drag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but it, it's, but it was never a sexuality thing. It was like this art form. Yeah, you're 100% right. In Vietnamese culture and really actually the entire Asian continent, you have basically three large groups of people that are all making it challenging for queer people to be themselves. One, you have the religious cohorts who of obviously course. are preaching as loud as possible mm-hmm. that this is like a complete sin and cannot be. Then you have the art community, which has this unique narrative, which is it's just a job, yes. not any connection to your actual self-expression. Yep. So you have ladyboys, drag queens, very successful performers, and their parents love what they do for mm-hmm. a living. Mm-hmm. But if they came out as gay... Yeah, no. End of conversation. And then I guess you have this third community, which I would think politically, Mm. uh, maybe linked specifically to religion in some way, shape, or form. But Very much so. You've had a really rough history across the entire continent of laws around adoption, about Mm -hmm. same-sex marriage, about working and being out. So what was your understanding as a child, maybe— as, as a very young child, but then as you got a little bit older, about how your parents would have handled you coming out? Did it ever get brought up? Um, it was never brought up because no one spoke about it. Mm. I thought it wasn't okay. We can't speak about it. I felt like I was disappointing them, especially as a Vietnamese immigrant kind of growing up in Australia. We lived in Springvale. It's a suburb that is full of other Vietnamese immigrants which means there's a lot of competition there between families about like how their kids are going to grow up, what they're going to achieve, what's going to happen. Mm. Like, did they do it all for nothing? Yep. So I felt as though being gay was going to be like a massive thing and that I was going to do my family this massive injustice. Of course. And so I never spoke about it. So I, I came out to like my friends and my like m- my schoolmates, but not to my parents and then didn't until a lot later. Did you know that being gay was a bad thing before you knew you were gay? I think it was kind of at the same time because I, I feel as though I came out at 12, but I'm pretty sure that I was always gay. Yeah. Yeah, like, like, you know, like obviously we are always gay. Sure. But 
in my mind, I, I don't actually remember at any point where I thought that I was straight. <laughs> so looking back on your timeline, when did you realize you liked boys? Oh, probably year five or five, maybe year four even. It was my best friend. Okay. And he was super supportive of me, like always. Like mm. he's like, because in primary school, I was bullied, not, not in my high school years, but in my primary school years before I came out. Um, and he was like, he was the one that always stood up for me. And I was like, that is so sweet. Like, we, we don't really talk now, but he slides into the DMs sometimes and is like, oh, you're doing so well. I'm like, oh, I remember you. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But um, he was super supportive and I like had major crush on him. Were you bullied for campness or were you bullied for yeah. race? No, it, we, we the school was in an Asian area. So um, there was a lot of other Vietnamese kids there. Mm. So it was not a race thing. It was definitely because of how camp I was, how feminine I was, that kind of vibe. The fact that I didn't like playing like basketball and like couldn't hit a softball. Yeah. Who plays softball? <laughs> Good oh my God, I'm going to offend so <laughs> you, many people. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to be dragged in this community. <laughs> so you realize, and then a couple years later, you come out in that time period, then basically those two or three years, what would have stopped you from speaking your truth to people? Was there a religious barrier? Was there this deep feeling of, you know, your family not supporting you? Yeah, I think it was more about not wanting to disappoint my family. Mm. And I felt like I was a disappointment at that stage. So I was kind of like keeping in. But I've always grown up knowing that there is something bigger at the end. So it was never like, I was never really sad about it. I was like, I just need to work my way through this because I will find my people. And I've always had that in my mind. Great. Now I'm not putting words in your mouth, but you said twice so far about like this cultural competition amongst mm -hmm. parents. So mm -hmm. you're in this Melbourne area, there's competition amongst other Vietnamese parents. Is that what you mean when you say that pressure of letting them down? Yeah, 100%. Like, so I put all my energy into doing things that I knew were going to make them super proud. Mm. Like things like getting scholarships to different schools and yeah, just doing really well academically. Yeah, of course. And sexuality was not a part of that no, equation. No, no. <laughs> and we were young. We didn't have to deal with it. Yeah. Well, also, I guess that is maybe the elephant in the room is it wasn't talked about as much back then. Yeah. It wasn't like everywhere you looked, there was gay people on television, on the radio. And like, uh, like okay, so 12, being 12, no one really spoke about it back in the 90s. Now I'm on TikTok and there's 12-year-olds doing makeup tutorials and mm. they're like, I'm non-binary. And I'm like, that is freaking amazing. Absolutely. Because this, that made no, like, I never knew about this when I was 12. Mm. The access. Can you imagine? Mm. All the struggles that we had on our own, a lot of that struggle that I think most people can't understand is the beginning of the struggle is just a question mark. Yeah. Who am I? What is? It? What are these feelings? I don't even have a word that I can put to it, but I know I'm different mm. because I don't want what mom and dad have. But the idea that you can flip open an app and not just learn about who you are, learn about all these other things too. Yeah. Like demisexual and pansexual and you're starting to understand the world and the human experience and that makes you feel less crazy. Yeah, 100%. Totally so who's agree. the first person you ever said I'm gay to? My best friend. When I was, that guy. Yeah, yeah. In year, uh, when I was 12 and then like my other schoolmates. But yeah, my best friend first. And that's, His name's Brian. Let, let's, try, let, let's, let's, let's give a shout out to Brian. Yes, Brian. We need more Brians in the world. <laughs> um, specifically men, because usually the experience of telling other boys at a young age is not a good one. No, he made me totally comfortable. And he had a girlfriend and like, it was never like a, like, yeah, I had a crush on him, but it wasn't, he was my best friend. He was literally my best friend. Amazing. So, because obviously the reason I even said amazing, uh, that first time completely shapes yeah. whether or not you're going to tell another friend or mm -hmm. if you're ever going to have the guts to tell people close to you. Why do you think all of your friends were accepting? Like, was it something about that school or that area or just the people? I mean, you're a badass, so maybe that is that. I think it was just because uh, 
one, we were young. Mm. Yeah, we were young. And then I had this support of like my three really close friends that kind of had my back. So no one made an issue out of it because they're like, well, they're cool. Yeah. Like it was a small school. There was probably about 80 of us in my year level. Wow. So it wasn't like a massive thing to anyone. Cause I, and I had, I was really close to pretty much the entire school. There's 80 people. Yeah. Like there's three, there's four classrooms basically. So um, yeah, no one made a big deal out of it. But then when I went to high school, I went to Halebury, which was a... It's not co-ed, it's parallel education. So female classrooms, male classrooms. Yeah. Um, same school. Yeah, but same school, you only mix during recess, lunch, and all that stuff. Mm. So I didn't feel very comfortable there because it was a new school. I was like, mm, back in the closet. Really? Yeah, straight back in. Wow. Wait, what? Is, explain what that would mean to people, and I guess I'll ask some leading questions. Does that mean you literally just don't tell anyone, or does that mean you change who you are, how you act, how you talk? I, um... I didn't really change. Oh, I kind of dulled down. You know how we have, growing up at queer, you have those two languages. You have the language that you use for people that you think is appropriate when they're not like you, and then you have, like, your authentic language. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was that first language when I was in high school. Mm. Um, I didn't come out to anyone. I was like, no, I'm not gay. Like, whatever I was asked about it. Mm. And... um. I became, like, super, like, boysy with the guys, that kind of vibe. Oh. Yeah. Anyone who's listening as a gay man's like, yep. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a language I have. What's up, mate? You watch the game this weekend? No, but, but you know what's really funny? Me doing that back in, like, my early high school years actually taught me how to interact with my mates now, where I'm like, yeah. like, I'll go to a footy game with them, like, and... Like, I'll be screaming and they're like, we don't expect this from you. I'm like, yeah, this is some kind of dormant thing that happened when I was a lot younger, but it only comes out if I'm at a live game. Like, wow. not when I'm on, not if I'm watching it on TV, but when I'm there, I am in. And I am like super mask. I love, you know what? I've never spoken about this. This is an interesting conversation to have. Gay people, queer people at large are really good chameleons. Yep. We're forced to act at a young age, we're forced to perform, not really always by others, usually by ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we get really good at, I, the best way to explain it is a waiter who goes from table to table to mm -hmm. table and is able to completely morph their personality based off the people sitting there. If it's a group of old people, hi ladies, what can I get for you? If it's a bunch of guys, you want beers all around? Like we're able to mold our personality. And we feel that it's for safety. And in many ways and across this world it is. But as you get older, you can use that skill for yeah. good, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Especially in your line of business, like being a media personality, working in restaurants, being able to kind of like, I think they're all authentic parts of you. Yeah. You just were forced to explore them. Mm -hmm. Whereas other people who are never forced to explore it don't have the different sides to their personality. The, I think it makes us more self-aware. Mm -hmm. We're able to read the room better, which means we can react slash interact with the room better. Yes, you're right. Mm. There's almost like from fear comes this sense of almost observation and anxiety. Uh, like, what do people think? Yep. How are they looking at me? And then from that actually can breed empathy. You just, you're aware of other people. Like, I don't want to call it this, but I think it's a survival skill. It's like, it it's is. part of evolution. Like you learn how to mold yourself so that you stay alive. A hundred percent. And I think there's a reason why great actors, great creatives, great performers, like that artistic community is so packed full of queer people because they were forced from survival mm -hmm. to fight or flight. Like they were yeah. running a lot and they were trying to like grab onto whatever was going to keep them alive. And then those skills never go away. So even when you find your true authentic self, 
you still have that ability to go into uncomfortable situations into the lion's den and thrive. Yep, 100% agree with you. Literally on Survivor Blood or Water. I mean, let me tell you, all <laughs> those skills come out. I was thinking that because everyone was like, oh, you're you're uh, a social threat. And I was like, no, I wasn't. I'm myself. And they're like, mm. it's a social threat. And I'm like, how? And like, because you ask people questions and like, you want to know about this and that. And I'm like, that's just how you make conversation. Like, that's how you just learn about people. No, queers are a social threat. Okay. <laughs> we have masterful skills. I was really interested in that sentence you said where you say, I had to go back into the closet. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how that felt? Is it something that you can kind of consider like, oh shit, I have to literally step back and not be who I am anymore? Or was it just like, I have no choice, I have to survive? It's like, you know, think about being a 12-year-old such maybe 13-year-old now, um, going into year seven. You're already scared. You're going to a new high school. You of don't course. know anyone. You don't know the layout. You don't know the teachers. You don't, kn- you don't understand what's about to happen. So I took that out of the equation. The one thing that was going to make me even more different and more mm. afraid, that was gone. I didn't wow. think about it. It wasn't a part of my life because I just needed to navigate this first year. How do I make friends? Who are my friends? How do I deal with the schooling itself? Like what's the workload going to be? There's so much that you deal with as a like an early teens child that it's you just wanted to take something away. It's so difficult already. Mm-hmm. Like you walk into the school as a completely heterosexual white person and you're, I mean, the bullying and the acne and the your breasts changing and like sexuality and hormone. It's a difficult time. Throwing a queer into that mix. Swimming carnivals. Mm. Yeah, like that's not a vibe. No. Like that gives you major anxiety. That gave me major anxiety. I loved swimming, but I, I that gave me major anxiety. I'm like, imagine coming out as gay at 13 and having to do, do a swimming carnival in your like speedos with all the other boys. And they're like, and then what are they thinking? What, like, it's not about what I'm thinking. It's yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. are they thinking of me being here? Isn't that crazy? I feel like that that is a fundamental part of that experience is you lose your childhood is carefree. Mm. You're trapped in your own brain. Yep. Just thinking about your life and your existence. And then something happens. I think for queer people, it might be a little bit earlier, but I know it's all teens where all of a sudden you become addicted to what other people are thinking, yep. forgetting that they're addicted to what other people are thinking. Yeah. You're lost in their brain and they're actually lost in yours. This is survival. <laughs> I, that's why I'm like, the. that's why I think queers must be on every season. Yep. I think... They are. Yeah. yeah we, we're, think, we're always there and do quite well. <laughs> I, think that, I think we dominate. Yes. So, at what point do you feel comfortable talking to your family? Oh, it came a lot later. I went through so many changes in my life before I was comfortable. Um, I didn't tell my family, and there are so there's there's a couple of major moments here, but I'm just going to skip it for a second, then we'll go back. Okay. Um, I came out to my mother when I was 16 or 17. I think I was uh, 17, 16, year 11, 17. I was 17. Um, but by that point, my dad had passed away. Okay. Yeah. So um, a few steps back, you know that I come out to my mother at 17. Came out to my sister. I think a year or two before that. Um, sister's my best friend. I worship her. She's a absolute goddess. Like, she's amazing. She is literally a goddess. Like, she's, like, when she was on Survivor, every time I saw her, I'm like, why do you look good? Yeah. Did you write something into your contract that I don't have? Like, do you have a makeup artist? <laughs> is there a here? highlighter there? No, I literally was like, Amy, do you have skincare out here? Like, yeah. do, do, do you have, like, products out here? Because you are glowing. Anyway, um, so high school, went through it, all good. Year nine, was obsessed with being 
really academic because I wanted to make my parents proud. Sure. So one of the most proud things that you can do as a Vietnamese man living in Melbourne is to get into Melbourne High, which is a selective school. Okay. They take, I think they take one or two students from every single school that applies. Wow. So, you, yeah, so it becomes a thing. And mm. the, you, you sit an entrance exam and so they try to take like the kids that they think are going to be really, really strong academically. Yeah. I got in. Yes, you did. I got in. So did two of mum's friends, kids. Ruined everything yeah, for her. Yeah, ruined everything. I was like, oh my God, I got in. Anyway, <laughs> was there for nine months. Nothing wrong with the school. The mm. school is great. Just very, very focused on academics. I hated it. I hated being there. Mm. Um, it was an all-boys school. I had to commute about an hour every day to and from. So two hours on the train. And I wasn't myself. And I was just like, I fucking hate this. Yeah. Like, I like it's nothing to do with the school. It had to do with me and sure. my experience and what I was going through and what I, I was doing. So I said to mum, I don't want to be here anymore. This was about six months into the, the schooling year. And I was like, I want to go back. I want to go back to Halebury. And um, came out as soon as I came back. Like, I was totally comfortable there. I had friends there. Um, in, the, in your late teens at the school... The school, the way that the school works changes and you have lectures. So you're in like lectures with um, girls. So you do your shoots with boys, but you've got lectures with girls because mm. you sit in a giant lecture theatre with everyone that did that those subjects. So I was feeling to- totally comfortable. The school was supportive, super supportive. Anything I wanted, they were there. Uh, friends were super supportive. I was getting invited to all the parties. So it was like, oh yeah, the end of football season party, the end of rowing season party. It's like... I was going to everything. Mm. I felt totally comfortable and I loved it. And that's when I felt comfortable to come out to mum. But saying that in year 10, when I did come back, dad um, passed away of liver cancer, which developed because of hepatitis B. Okay. And he didn't actually tell us about it for like four years. So he knew for four years. But what he wanted to do was build the family business to a point where it would support our family without him having to be there, Mm. which pissed me the fuck off. Like sure. I was so angry because we basically knew the last two months of him being alive. Oh no. Yeah. So that was kind of like, and I am really stubborn and big headed. And yeah. So when he passed away, went to school, acted like nothing had happened, lived this total normal life. Like just shut that out of my, like that, that wasn't a thing anymore. Mm. That was gone. Next year came out to mum. We had an okay relationship. Then about six months down the road after I've come out, we were sitting in the car and we were having these conversations about, I think, the business, the bookshop that they had started together. Dad was gone and she kept talking about, like, this new person that was there helping her run it. I was like, I don't want to talk about this. She did it again. Mom, I don't want to speak about this. Like, she had picked me up from school. I was like, I don't want to talk about this. I was in the car. On the fourth time that I said, I do not want to speak about this, when she started it again, I opened the door and I rolled out. You did not. I rolled out of the car. We weren't like, we weren't so traveling. We were like, a little stubborn, huh? <laughs> yeah, and like super dramatic. I mean, I love it. It's a movie moment. <laughs> it's literally like, nope, don't like this. Just drop and roll. Wow. <laughs> um, we weren't traveling at 80Ks or anything. We were coming sure. to a, a red light. So we were slowing down and I just, meh. What was the story? Um, well, uh, in my mind, it was that like, oh, she was starting to talk to someone. Oh, okay. And I was like, dad's been dead for a year. Like, I can't, yeah. I don't, I'm not dealing with this. Can't process that. I'm not doing this. Like, I haven't even dealt with his death and you're talking about someone else. No. Wow. Obviously, I'm sorry that your father passed at such a young age. You. Did you ever get an opportunity to talk to him about your sexuality? No, no, no. Um, I didn't. And I actually didn't deal with his passing for literally until I was like 
almost 19. I was 18. I ran away. Oh, wow. I didn't run away in the sense that I packed my bags and got in the back of someone's ute and like just drove. But I set myself up over the couple of years after dad passing away and me having that argument with mum to leave the country. So what I did was I told mum I wanted to do fashion design. She was super supportive of that. So I did pattern making, garment construction and fashion business after hours, so after school school hours at Melbourne School of Fashion, so Mondays and Wednesdays, just to get like some certificates so that I could build a portfolio to apply for another school. Amazing. So as soon as I finished year 12, I applied for Central St. Martin's in London. Mm. Obsessed because obviously McQueen, like it's a vibe. You get to like intern at like Chanel. Yeah. It's a vibe. Um, oh, yeah. So that was my entire goal. Like, I was like, I want to go to London. I will become this massive fashion designer and that will be my life. Got into the foundations program. Yep. Left when I was 18. Mum and I are still rocky at this point. Flew to London. Was there for six months. Hated it. Oh, Comes no. lady, hated it. I was 18 in a new country. I had no friends. It is cold. Everything is grey. The streets are small and people don't smile. Yeah. There's London for you. <laughs> and I was like at a super, super... Um, competitive school where everyone is trying to beat each other because of course, like I think it's something stupid. Like thirty percent of the cohort end up finishing their degree. Wow, everything is just competition, and I had no support. I didn't make any friends. I was like, I want to come home. Oh, in uh, retrospect, were you running away a little bit? Yeah, I was definitely running away. Okay. I do that a lot. I think I'm actually running away right now. We we can talk about that okay. later. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I'm actually running away right now. Um. Yeah, so weird point in the middle of this, between my ages of 16, 17, and 18, I actually started going out underage and I was DJing underage. Okay. So I had that skill set. The start well. of a long career, like yeah. a successful one. Yeah, that, so when I came home, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was halfway through the schooling year, so I couldn't really go into a course at that point. So I had this six months where I'm like, I can't live at home. Yeah. Like mum and I have not. We're not good again. So I'm not living at home. I'm going to go and live out of my home and I'm just going to DJ for a bit. By the end of that year where I had found my feet and I had been getting regular gigs, I was playing like three times a week, which wasn't crazy. I was making like, what, $400. But $400 as an 18-year-old a week <laughs> is not bad money, especially no. when you're getting paid to party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, w- I came home at when I was 19 didn't live with mum, but I, I visited her every Monday and I was I apologized to her. I was like, you know, I was a brat. I ran away. I overreacted. Um, I obviously wasn't dealing with things. You're allowed to see whoever you want. That's on you. Like, I should not, like, that's, my feelings towards dad shouldn't affect how you want to be for the rest of your life. And I think mm. that's super unfair. Mm. And we our relationship has become stronger and stronger and stronger since that. And if that conversation didn't happen, I don't think mom and I would be friends. Yeah, wow. How did she actually react to the gay part? Was she fine? Oh my God. We did, we, we, we went one. No, I, I was, <laughs> that was the third part I wanted to get back to. It's okay. Um, that's so funny that I just went, yeah, because it wasn't a thing. Okay. Yeah, so when I came out to mom, I built this up when we all do it. We think that um, when you come out to your parents or your family, that it's going to be like this big like monumental moment. It is for some people, mm-hmm. yes. But for a lot of us, they know. Oh, they, they smelt it for a decade. Yeah, they, they've known for so long. So when I came out to my mum goes, okay, it's like the 21st century, I know. Secondly, 
gays are doing really well in Vietnam. Like, it's starting to really trend here. So do you want to go to Vietnam and start working there? And let's see if we can try to make you famous in Vietnam. And I was like, what wow. is this, mom? She became your man- your queer manager <laughs> in like 25 seconds. I literally, I could not. Like, mm. I was like, I was listening to her speak about it. And I was like, this was not where I thought this conversation was going. Yeah. You know what? I think there are, we were, we were able to tie up some loose ends here because I really wanted to understand that relationship because the coming out experience is so important to people, but mm. usually it's so important to people just with their family. Yeah. You didn't get that opportunity with your dad, unfortunately. Yes. I'd love to know how you think he would have felt, maybe. Hmm. Like, was he always supportive? Did you guys have a he good relationship? Was, but he was also very tough because mm. I was closer to mom and dad was closer to Amy, my younger sister. He was very tough. So I don't know. Dad's also very chilled though. So I think he would have been fine because like mom would have just been like, you're being a dick if he wasn't fine. But um, saying that, I actually don't know. Okay. Like I, I have no idea how he would have reacted because I think my career change was also because dad passed away. So if uh, if he didn't pass away, I was I would probably be a plastic surgeon right now. Wow. Yeah. I mean that's quite a beautiful accidental gift. Yeah. Also, I mean, I I can't speak for him, but I'm a father mm. and I'm gay, so it's not really relevant at all. But <laughs> the idea of getting the opportunity to see your son uh, become a fundamental part of the queer experience for Australians, like young people turning on TV, getting opportunity to see you, going onto social media, seeing like what a f- you've woven yourself into the fabric of the LGBTQI plus experience in this country. For any parent, whether you're uncomfortable or comfortable with their mm. sexuality, at some point along the journey, you pinch yourself and go, we made a huge risk mm-hmm. leaving, fl- literally running from our country yes. to a new one to give our children a better life. And look at what they did with it. Yeah. I mean, that must be a beautiful. Like, I'm, I have no doubt that would be super proud of both Amy and I. But I, I just don't know how he would have reacted at the time. Mm. I think if he reacted badly, I still think that my life would be completely different. Yeah. I mean, clearly that was such a fundamental like line in the sand for uh-huh. you because you book it, you go to London. You're forced then because of that to come back and deal with your relationship with your mom. Mm. I think it's interesting that she doesn't think it's that big of a deal and almost celebrates it a little bit <laughs> because really what I want to talk about is this: the sentence you said, we make it in our heads way worse than it usually is. Yeah. The truth is, even when it's bad, yeah. even when they say, get out, yeah. Even when they say, you're a sinner, I don't want to see you here. Mm-hmm. Even when they cut you off and you never speak to them again. The reality is on the other side of that line is a different life. It's yeah. another line in the sand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and I have a really similar experience, which is like, I thought it was going to be the worst thing ever. Yes. I come out. She's like, <laughs> yes, my queen. Mm-hmm. We are well aware of that. You have a Jake Gyllenhaal poster above your bed. <laughs> we get it. And then all Wait, of a sudden- really? Yes. I was like obsessed when I was- With at, Jake Gyllenhaal? I- don't even know why. Like, okay, what was Taylor even Swift. in at that time? <laughs> Somewhere, Swifties are furious right now. They're like, Sean, can you get the scarf back? Um, but I feel like <laughs> that was a good Sorry, that was my really scarf, good. My scarf reference. I loved it. I loved it so much. <laughs> and the answer is yes, I can. Jake, give me a call. Um, but I feel like the the advice is not, hey, it's not going to be bad because it might be. Mm-hmm. The advice is you're building it up in your head when you could just spend that time getting it out of your head mm-hmm. and then dealing with the ramifications mm-hmm. and then moving on with your life. Oh my gosh. 
there's one person that needs to listen to this and they're not going to listen to this and I need them to listen to this and it just it's doing my head in right now. This is why I'm running away. Okay. Yes. Go. Yes. They are, they are, I've just been hanging out with someone who's not out and I can't oh, wow. expect them to be out. Of course. But I'm still like, oh, you have so much anxiety about this. Yeah. And like, it's like you don't need to have the anxiety about this because on the other side, that part of your life is not going to be fucking with your head anymore because mm. I can see it that it's really fucking with them. It's the worst. I could see it in your whole body. Like your body changed when you had to like pause and take that deep breath. It isn't so black and white. You and I know that. Mm -hmm. The reality is all across the world and all across this country, there are family dynamics. There are religious, uh, you know, components. There are uh, justified concerns about Mm. what could potentially happen. We do not live in a world that is so 100% accepting yet. Mm. But- a life of fear mm. is always, always, always worse than a life of potentially losing people but getting an opportunity to be yourself on the other end of it. And you meet so many more people that celebrate you and are happy to like make you feel good and support you and love you and that aren't judging you. Like there's there's no judgment after you come out, I feel. It's in, well, there is by like small communities, but... There's so much more celebration. It's true. I think if you, when you're queer and you're living in this modern world, you might, again, justifiably have some concerns about how people are going to feel about you. But the truth is, and this is just cold, hard fact, there is always going to be people who Mm -hmm. don't like you. It has nothing to do with your sexuality. There are people who don't like you because of the color of your skin. There are people who don't like you because of your job. There are people who don't like you because you have red hair. Those people are always going to exist. And if you're on social media, they will find you. (laughs) But at the end of the day, you get a choice in life. You absolutely do have a choice Mm -hmm. in finding those people who are, that's why I think queer community is so important. We often hear from trolls, like, why do the queers need to have a community? There's no such thing as a straight community. Because we've grown up our entire life without having that support, and we need that support once we come out. And there is a thing called the straight community. It's called the world. Yeah, 100%. It's everything else. So I feel like if you're living in that bubble right now and you're really stressed out or concerned, I guess this is the valuable part of your story about, you know, letting people know. Yeah, it might be hard, Sure. It's like ripping off a Band-Aid. It could be hard for a day or a week or a month or a year. You might actually lose those friend, those relationships. But on the other end of it, I promise you, there are hundreds, thousands, millions of people, 12 million or 15 million in the United States alone. I know that random number. So it's millions in every single country mm. who are going to look at you in the eyes and go, no big deal mm-hmm. at all. In fact, I celebrate you. I love you. Yeah. Welcome in. And, like, then there's the allies as well. Like, there's so much more. It's just, it's really sad because we've all been through it. We go through that moment where we think of the worst case scenario and we think that that's exactly what's going to happen to us. Mm. We're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose all our friends. Our family are going to disown us. We're not going to be able to, I don't know, make money because of prejudice against being queer. You need to come out because all of those things uh, these kind of paranoia that you have in your own mind is paranoia. Mm. And it, you cannot stress yourself out of a bad mm, situation. It's no. never happened ever. You yeah. cannot be so anxious and consumed and scared that the situation goes away. Yeah. That's not no. how it works. The only way to make the situation go away is to like step into it oh, and deal with it. Like, And that's what I 
do with my entire life. Mm. Like, sometimes he gets drunk. Sometimes he <laughs> tweets things that he shouldn't tweet. <laughs> like, may have had a go at a fellow Survivor contestant oh. when I was drunk and I... Apologize for that, Geordie. You're actually a very nice person. Um, you are one of my very close friends. I'm just going to take this as me being a douche because I was drunk and I saw that you had said one thing about my younger sister. Yeah, exactly. And Come for my, that's the blood right there. Yeah. Come for my sister. Yeah, we'll I was like, you, my sister didn't even care. Mm. And I was like, how freaking dare you? Like, I was like, oh, and I was like, Mm, this is TV though. So yeah, I don't exactly. know if this is 100% real. So I had to apologize. But that's how I deal with my entire life now. If there's a situation that I know is going to make me uncomfortable, I'm like, I just have to deal with it because or else what? I'm going to not speak to Geordie for the next three or so months and then like be awkward around each other. And that takes more space in my mind. If I just deal with it, that's gone. Yeah. Because your sister is also in the public eye now, um, I'm interested. You told her before you told your um, my your mom. mother. Yeah. How did she handle it? She was younger? Yeah, she's so much younger. I think she was 10. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, if I was going to say 10, it's like, what is that word? <laughs> yeah, she's like, yeah, okay. I, but I think I think that kind of introduction to like the LGBTQIA plus community for her was great as well because she's grown up and she's now always been immersed in it, mm. which is really annoying because all of her friends are my friends and sometimes they choose her over me so they want to hang out with her more and I'm like, Amy, these were my friends first. Well, I was interested, <laughs> like, watching the show, obviously, so far, we haven't had an opportunity to, like, see... Well, actually, we never had an opportunity to see the two of you talk about it, but when a sibling comes out at a young age, mm. there are ramifications on the other sibling. Mm-hmm. It's not the most important ramification. We shouldn't mm-hmm. hold all the space for it because the reality is she didn't have to deal with the internalized homophobia. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to cry herself to sleep mm-hmm. or was fearful. But at the end of the day, other kids are nasty. And it's hard to understand is my, especially because we grew up at the same time, my younger siblings who also found out at 11 and 13 were like, does that mean Sean and Con is going to have a good life or a mm-hmm. bad life? Is it going to be easy for them? or bad? And at that time, I'm sure people used to say gay and pufta mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she had to hear those words. I mean, have you ever spoken about that? Yeah, I think um, Amy Amy was quite, I think, fortunate that she went to Halebury at an early year. Mm-hmm. So she was there from like year five when I was already there. So people already knew about me, yeah. knew of me. Yeah. And because the school is so nurturing, I don't think she ever had to deal with any of those things Great. about me. Mm. But I think what did affect her, which she won't, she'll say it's not true, but I know it's true. Um, she's had to deal with the fact that she's 10, the attention is on me being gay. She becomes 18, I'm touring the world as a DJ. She becomes 19, I've come third on MasterChef. Yeah. So her whole life has been like, it's the Khan show. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, we speak about that sometimes. And she's like, no, no, it's fine. Like, she's quite reserved. She's um, a little bit quieter than I am. Um, but I know deep down, I'm like, this is Amy's, like, Amy, you need to take your moment. Mm. Like, you need to stop letting me mm. dictate how your life is because you are so incredible. You are so amazing. That's why I was so proud of her when she, like, chose to do Survivor because yeah. she, that, she's that's right out of her comfort zone. Like that's Amy would never have done that if I wasn't there. She would have just been like, I don't want to go be on TV. I don't want to do like challenges. I don't want to be in the bush. But she thrived off it. Yeah. Off it. She fell in love with it. Mm. And she's like, I want to go back. That's what was so beautiful about this particular season is you get the opportunity to see the nuances of family mm. dynamic. But what you also got to see 
was famous people, Sophie, you, uh, Mark and Samantha, mm -hmm. uh, people who the public already knows, but specifically with you and Sophie, and then get to see your siblings who mm -hmm. aren't as well-known, and you really get to see them for who they are because we, you were separated. Mm -hmm. We got to watch, Australia got to watch your sister be a badass. She was a, a boss. social player. She made moves. A lot of people play the game and go home having done nothing. nothing. And she was like, watch this. Yeah, if I'm like, going to be here, I'm going to play. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to talk. I'm going to be manipulative when I need to in the most strategic way. And then on top of all that, just seemed like a nice, beautiful person. Yeah. And now we already knew and loved you and get to watch you play the game, but I think it was quite special. And so I was just interested as a viewer because again, they didn't give you guys a ton of like, give us your backstory. What was it like to have an older queer sibling? Was that hard? Was it easy? Mm. Or was it more about just being in the shadow of this person who's older and is like claiming the space? I Look, I think for her, a lot of her life was probably more molded and shaped by the fact that dad passed away for her when she was like 10. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm super protective of Amy because I felt like I had to step into this role. Mm. Um, I think I said I said that to Mark at one stage that I'm like, because I, I, they cut it out, but I cry a lot on the show. <laughs> I cried every time I saw my sister. I cried every oh, time. Oh, we saw that the first couple episodes. It's beautiful. Yeah, but I cried every time Amy lost a challenge. I cried when she didn't have fire for the first three days because I know that her biggest thing is that she doesn't like to be cold. Yeah. Yeah. So I cried a lot for her because I'm super supportive of Amy yeah. and super like protective of Amy. And I said to Mark, I'm like, people will see that my relationship, my, my sister is supposed to be like a sibling thing. But there's also this kind of weird overarching thing where I had to step into that yeah. father role or like sure. that, that masculine like father figure role. Mm. And so, and that's something that I've been trying to learn to not do because I feel as though she doesn't need it and it actually hinders her experiences because I'm always there being like, you should be doing this, sure. you should be doing that. And you want to listen to your brother slash father figure, of course, right? Like yeah. that's a huge part. So the other thing I really want to talk about before we kind of get into your adult life is you talked about self-expression. Yeah. So you've always been a little bit feminine. Clearly, based off your educational uh, narrative journey all the way up through London, there are places where you're more mm -hmm. – where you're allowed to express that, and mm -hmm. then there are some places where you are not. Yes. But you've said that you are coming to terms of doing it more or you're yeah. finding yourself a little bit more. What does that look like for you? So um – just to paint a little picture, when I was a DJ and when I was touring as a DJ, I was gay, but I would say not gay enough for it to be like a thing. You know how sometimes we're like, it's not gay. It's of not course. like, yeah. Um, so I, I always played straight clubs, straight music festivals, straight events. Um, um, yeah, so I kind of always hid away a bit, always dulled that energy down. Then I went on MasterChef the first season. And for the first third of that season, I thought, I need to be professional here because there are the people judging me. Yeah. And so I dulled it down. Worked, it worked to be like the worst thing I could have done because the judges were like, we don't know who you are. Yeah. Like we don't get this. Because when I um, when I got on the show, I was like super fun and super like flamboyant because I, I was just doing it with a producer. And I was like, hey, yeah, eat this. Oh, my chicken's a little bit burnt at the bottom. But if you eat the top, you'll get the marinade and that's really yummy. Mm. I didn't have enough time to dress this properly. So it needs a little bit more acid in it. Like They were seeing your personality then. Yeah. And then when I went up, I was like, so I've cooked chicken and blah, blah, <laughs> Here blah. Here I have for you. Yeah. And they're like, oh. so I remember producer actually coming up to me going um you need to do something because the judges don't know you and if they don't know you they'll probably get rid of you yeah and i was like oh shit 
And from that moment, I started to really express myself. The way that I spoke, again, changed. And I was really being who I normally am. And then I started to be celebrated for it. And then that's when I was like… The back half of the season was basically your story in many ways. I was like… And when I came back a second time, I was me. Mm. Like, I remember there was a challenge where it was um, about fairy tales… And Melissa Leong, who I love, she came up to me and was like, why did you choose Beauty and the Beast? And I was like, he's a beast? Like, <laughs> and she's like, okay, could you explain that a little bit further? I'm like, well, I think Beauty and the Beast is the story of like every gay man's dream. Like you're a no one, you, you, you end up in this castle and then like there's a beast there and like you're still strong, you're yourself, you start to fall in love, you, you then dance to Ariana Grande. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, is that not the ultimate gay love story? Mm. And then she's like, yeah, but then he becomes a prince. And I'm like, I don't want the prince, I want the beast. <laughs> <laughs> so through that show, you like through that evolution on its own, you get to learn to express yourself? I, yeah, because I, then I wasn't scared of the public perception of me anymore because I was seeing it. I was watching it live. Mm. I was seeing that people were celebrating me for being who I am mm. and that like... Yeah, I speak a lot and sometimes I say dumb things, but that's me. And like, I use mannerisms and I'm like, I dance during challenges because I'm like, oh yeah, I love this. Like this, this, this sauce worked out really good and I'll have a little jig. Like, um, and that's what I do. So that's when I started to really kind of come into my own, especially the second season of MasterChef. I came off and I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to do me. I'm going to do whatever I want because the representation that I was after when I was younger I wasn't, I didn't see it in like magazines. I didn't see it on the screens. It was always a caricature of what a gay man should be. Mm. And it wasn't good. And it wasn't good. It was just literally like... The butt of a joke. Yeah, it's like the gay best friend. Yeah. And I'm just like, "Mm, there's so much more to me than this. So I was like, you know what? This is my second time on the show. I need to be comfortable enough to be me just because I would want this representation. This is what I needed and what I wanted when I was a child, yeah. which means there's going to be other children that would need and want this as well. Yeah. So I was just like, yep, yeah, cool. Let's play. Yes. I think what's so special as a viewer, as an Australian, as someone getting an opportunity to watch a show specifically like MasterChef is unlike a lot of other reality competition shows where it's about your look mm. or uh, even your social game. When you're making food, how you act or talk with your hands or what eye makeup you wear is irrelevant. (laughs) And that's really fun for us to get to watch all of these people who come from completely different backgrounds. But as a queer person, to see a lot of other queer people, there were like a bunch on your season. Yeah. And and the seasons that followed, it's like it keeps growing and growing and growing. We literally said it was the season of the gays. That's when it started. (laughs) And then the next season, or I guess Connor's season, there was like the Muska queers. Like the Mm. show has done a really good job of saying... We actually do not care who you are outside (laughs) of it. Can you make good food? And so if you're, maybe you're homophobic, maybe you don't know people of different races, you come from an all-white community and you're watching the show and you're getting to see this food you really want to eat and you're like, damn. And then you keep looking up and realizing, wait a second. Gay people don't just have to be makeup artists. They can do anything and do it really well. And I think you get to be a part of that. And that's a beautiful narrative. Oh, no. Yeah, I literally started to become myself because of that. And then then the year following that is when I got really obsessed with TikTok. Um, And I I just love TikTok so much. And I love how expressive the younger generation, I'm not old, 
not old. I'm 29. I'm not old. But no, there's still there, there is still a younger generation. Yes. The younger generation is super expressive. They're they're happy to be themselves, and they're super authentic. And that made me go, I want to be super authentic. So I had more piercings. I've started to dress differently. I started to be more expressive. I paint my nails now, which yeah. I love. Yeah. Um, I'm having more fun. Mm. And I think I love that I'm learning from the younger generation. Isn't it powerful? Yeah, it's great. The one thing they do better than really any generation, no, that's not true. I guess in the 70s, they explored it too, is expression, uh, yeah. exploration. Yeah. We grew up in a time where exploration, specifically if it wasn't uh, in a very particular path, was kind of shunned upon. Mm. If a boy... Uh, no matter their sexuality, wanted to express themselves, explore gender or creativity or their hair or long or beads or makeup or nails, it immediately meant sexuality. It Mm -hmm. immediately meant you are gay. Yes. And now I think there's a deeper understanding that like you can wear whatever you want. Like clothes. The pearls trend. I mean, 100%. And like so that we can walk down the street and we can see people and we can go, you know what? just because they're expressing themselves using fashion or even their physicalities, that does not necessarily mean that they are a specific gender Mm -hmm. or sexuality. And that's beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's like, I've learned so much watching other people express themselves. And I feel like it's a constant, it's going to be constant for me. I'm just going to keep learning. I'm like, I've been like been trying so hard to be really good at makeup. I have nothing on today, but I've been trying so hard and it's all because of TikTok. Yes. So when you look back in your life, we've made it here today. Obviously, it's a fairy tale ending in the sense that you get to be yourself. You have support of your family. You have a really good friendship and a really good career. Mm. When you're thinking about young versions of you mm. who are maybe listening to this, but are, are in school, they're 12, they're in primary, they, they know who they are. What type of advice would you give to them? Um... My biggest thing, which is so ridiculous because you hear this all the time when you're younger and it doesn't make any sense to you because you don't realize of how true it is until you experience it. It's that your differences and your differences make you special. The fact that you don't fit in makes you special because when you grow up, those are going to be the things that you're celebrated for. So just be authentically yourself because I, I guarantee you when you are authentically yourself, that is when people will love you the most. Mm. And it's like, people always say that. It's like, be yourself. But it's like, no, but actually it makes like, it, it, when once you are yourself, it makes total sense. Like all of those fears of rejection, fears of being ostracized, fears of being ridiculed, they don't exist once you're like, I can own me. Mm. This is who I am. And these are my people. Oh, yeah. If... I was you at 12 years old and I came out to you. How do you wish that someone had responded? I would have just been like, I don't think I would have made it a big deal. I feel like if someone came out to me, I'm like, um, that's amazing. Like, do you have good friends around you? Like, oh, how, how are you feeling? Are you comfortable? Like, I think it's more about making the 12-year-old feel like they're being heard but not being judged. Yes. Yeah, I think that's the most important part. It's like, listen and don't judge. Learn. See what the child needs or the teenager needs because there's always something there. And sometimes the need is just the need of comfort, of support. Yeah, I mean, you hit on something beautiful, which is oftentimes people come out uh, 
questions are actually never asked. Mm. How are you? Mm. Do you have support? Do you have friends? Yeah. Instead, the questions are usually negative ones. Yeah. How do you know if you haven't had sex yet? Yeah. <laughs> right? These like harsh ones. But I think you've, you made me, I was pretending to be this 12-year-old, putting myself in my own child's body. And this idea of like, that's amazing is already a step ahead of what yeah. most people hear. Like, that's great news. I just feel as though a lot of people, if they were dealing with someone coming out of them, they don't understand that sometimes all you need to do is listen. Mm. And like, you, you don't need to say anything being scared that it's going to be the wrong thing if you're just there to listen to them. And a lot of people also are really scared of saying the wrong thing. But it's like, that's how you also learn. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's powerful. And like you said, it's hard for 12-year-olds to know this until it happens when they're mm. a little bit older. But there's someone on the other end of that conversation sitting in the other chair who might not be prepared or know mm. what to say and they want to do their best. And so sometimes listening is, the, the best advice is like, if you don't know what to say, it is completely fine to say, I don't know how to respond right now, but I'd love to learn more. I'd love to hear more. Yeah. How are you feeling? Can you tell me more? How long have you known? Like just ask questions, questions, let them yeah. talk. And then it gives you an opportunity to think before yeah. you say something you might regret. Yeah. 100%. Well, thank you for being so honest. Thank you for coming and talking to me. I appreciate it. No, no problems. I've, I've actually really enjoyed this. I love a deep dive into the queer mindset that I had growing up. Yeah, mm. I'm obsessed. Um, it's, been, it's been actually really nice for me as well. It kind of gave me some time to think about how I grew up. Because you kind of like, life is really fast paced, yeah? And you don't really have moments where you sit down and go, what have I done? Mm. What have I gone through? And I think as queer people, we're definitely not ever asked to talk about this a lot. No. We, we do our coming out and then it's like, once the closet door is closed, you sprint in the other direction. Yeah. And what we talked about in the very, very beginning of the conversation is a lot of queer people have suppressed a ton of trauma. Yeah. Maybe their parents said the wrong things. Maybe their friends didn't accept them. Maybe school was really hard. But because of that fight or flight, they suppress and they move on. They suppress and move on. But mm. sometimes the path to healing is to revisit that and go, wait a second, that was really hard. Yep. Wait a second, that was really mean when they said that. Wait a second, I deserved better. I'm, see, this is, you, you, you're speaking about trauma. And I think that the reason that I don't really have many stories of that is because I don't really allow it to happen. Mm. Like I'm, I'm, I'm quite confrontational. So if you called me a fag, I will fight you on yeah, it. Let's go. Yeah, like let's go. Like mm -hmm. I'm not just going to be shy. But that's not the best advice either, <laughs> because you can find yourself in some very unsafe situations if you're always going to arc up. Sure. Yeah, but that's how I've always been. Yeah, and I think that's a huge story in the queer community. It's like if you feel like your back's against the wall, mm. you have two choices. You suppress who you are entirely and hide. Yeah. Let them hit you with their words or literally their hands, or you fight back. Yeah. Or you go, no, I'm never going to let you talk to me like that yeah. again. Honestly, the latter, which is where you're from and, and unfortunately where I'm from too, <laughs> is what pushes the community forward because yeah. sometimes it requires the people, you know, fighting. Yeah. On the other side, obviously, you have an easier existence in air quotes because you're being quieter. But again, if you're not revisiting these conversations, I think the, the takeaway that I'm going to leave here is revisiting your past, whether it's writing it down or talking about it with friends, mm is going to be key to your long-term success. It is an important part of the LGBTQI plus experience that you figure out, how did I become this person? Yeah. Where did it come from? Can I unpick how much of it is because I was performing to get here? Mm. Or can I unpick that, no, this is a choice I made. The only way to do that is to go back, think about your coming out story, think about the interactions you had as a childhood, think about the people who did you wrong, and just mm. think about it. Mm -hmm. Do the work. Mm -hmm. Just ask questions. And ideally, do it with another queer person. Yeah, definitely. 
Oh, this has been so lovely. <laughs> thank you for coming. I no, appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Okay, we are back. How are you going? How are you feeling? If this episode left you wanting more information about our wonderful LGBTQIA plus alphabet, then you should check out Minus 18. They're Australia's LGBTQIA plus charity. They have heaps of resources on their website and they run trainings for workplaces and classrooms. Minus 18 are on all socials at minus 18youth and their website is minus18.org.au. But Minus 18 isn't a helpline. So if you're looking for support, you can call QLife on 1-800-184-527 for free every day from 3 p.m. till midnight. If you're feeling anxious and not up to talking on the phone, they also have web chat at qlife.org.au. Lifeline is also available 24 hours a day for crisis support and suicide prevention. Their number is 13 11 14. If you want to be a part of the Come Out Wherever You Are community, you can slide into our DMs on Instagram at Come Out Wherever You Are. You can also follow me at Sean Zeps. That's S-E-A-N-S-Z-E-P-S. Come Out Wherever You Are is presented by me, Sean Zeps, producer Lindsay Green, executive producer Jennifer Goggin, and audio producer Chris Marsh. Listener.